Hey everyone, just a quick note to share before we start the show. Here at SmartLogic, we are currently hiring for a mid-level Rails developer. I know this is an Elixir show and we're talking about a mid-level Rails job, but what can you do? We're looking for someone with experience equivalent to two to three years working on a large Ruby on Rails projects. If this is you or anyone you know, head on over to smartlogic.workable.com to apply. We're taking applications from anywhere in the U.S. since we're all remote at this point anyways. And you won't stay programming in Rails forever, so the chance of future Elixir work is high. Okay, now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eepin, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Eric Ostrich. How are you doing, Eric? Good. We're joined by today's special guest, the inventor of Phoenix, Chris McCord. How are you doing, Chris? Good. Thanks for having me on. So this is season four, where we are talking a lot about system and application architecture. But since we've got a very special guest today, Chris McCord, the inventor of Phoenix, we're going to focus on Phoenix, broadly speaking. Chris, it's so glad to finally have you on the show. We wanted to start off by shaming you publicly for taking four seasons to get on. What took so long? <laughs> I think, uh, I think Justice, you had tracked me down at probably half a dozen conferences or more on having me on. So I think to my credit, I believe we did in Austin, Texas, I forget what conference, we made a brief in-person interview. But yeah, it's my bad for for not connecting. It's usually just right place, <laughs> right time. So I actually just reached inbox zero. So you caught me at like the perfect time where I was like, all right, got to get through this unanswered email. So happy to be on, happy to make it happen. You know what? You're totally right. You were on the first ever lunch episode, which was our biggest episode for multiple seasons until we had probably Jose on the show. And now I expect this will be our biggest episode ever, which is super exciting. So yeah, I'm a liar. You've been on the show before, but now we've got you on for a whole episode. I was actually thinking it would be really have been really funny if you were just like, well, you never invited me. And then like, what am I going to do? I couldn't be like, yeah, I invited you 50 times yeah, to make you a liar. Just, just <laughs> about it. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you never invited me. How did you get into programming, Chris? Like when you were just getting started as a young person, what was your your introduction to programming generally? Yeah, so I think these are still in use today, but as I get older, I don't know. So the TI-83 plus calculator is where it all started for me. So a TI basic, just like my calculator in, I think, like eighth grade. I had that throughout high school as well, but I think eighth grade, I just realized that, I forget how I found out about it. I don't know if it was a classmate, but it's where I discovered that you could quote unquote program. So TI Basic is where it all started, and I didn't know you know anything about programming at that point. So TI Basic was a, a great starting point for me. It's like an incredibly limited language, but that's kind of what got me in uh, calculator games. And I also made like so I, I would like quote unquote like cheat on my math test because I would write a program to calculate like Pascal's triangle or or whatever. But like the caveat is I had to actually learn how to like solve that problem. So like I didn't really need the program by the time it was done for the test. But it's kind of where what got me started. And then from there, I got in a little bit into like assembly programming for faster games on the calculator. I really had no idea what I was doing, but I was able to hack my way through. So yeah, that's where it I had a, a similar start. And I remember printing off all of the assembly instructions and like looking at them and then going like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think I checked someone else's source out. But I mean, this it's been so many years, but I think it was like a call Z and a call NZ I realized, like, uh, looked at the someone's source, and I was like, "Oh, this is like a 
a truthy call and this is like a, the else branch and it was just like enough of that hodgepodge together that I was able to make like a tennis game. So those were some interesting times. But anyway, from there I got into C programming in Java and then ultimately HTML and, and PHP. But uh, it was quite the journey starting from TI Basic. So place us on a timeline about like, you know, how old you were at each point of transition there and what you were doing with the different technologies. Yeah, so timeline, so like eighth grade, TI Basic, and then once I got into high school, so I think, you know, from there, I got like a learn C in 21 days from the library, just because like, you know, I was like, okay, programming, cool. That's just the book that I happened to pick up off the shelf. You know, I didn't really know anything about like what language to choose. So I kind of like stumbled my way through C, not successfully, but from there... Seems like it worked out though. <laughs> yeah, I played around with Java, but anyway, this is all to say somewhere around maybe 14, 15 years old, I wanted to build web applications. No one will probably know this, but there was a site and maybe it's still up. It was davesite.com. And it was like a guy named Dave made a, he taught HTML. It was like a free HTML course. And that's like what started my foray into web programming. So I learned HTML and made a static website with like 400 pages, but it was all like copy pasted into like notepad. And I didn't know how to make dynamic web applications. So I got into web programming and did it all statically. I was always thinking like when I went to like a homepage of MSN.com back in like dial-up days, you know, when they showed the current time or date, I was like, there must be some like piece of code that runs there. How are they doing that? So that's when I got in, I discovered PHP and PHP, like it perfectly mapped to my mental model of like how the web programming would have worked. Cause it was just like, oh, it's just HTML. But then of course there's just code that runs right here and inserts this in the page. So that was kind of my progression into web programming. So more or less self-taught that you take in college, any computer science courses or? Yeah, so I do have a CS degree. I say that like maybe the last quarter of my college experience was possibly worthwhile, but you know, I don't feel like that was a great time investment, but everything was self-taught in high school. And then I mentioned that website. I made like a flash game website when flash games were a thing. And that kind of jump-started my programming career and and knowledge from there. So, you know, started a little flash game company in high school and then in college, you know, went the CS route, which was natural, but it was mostly just waiting for stuff to get interesting and fun. But it was like my senior year of college, I was like trying to convince my teammates to use version control. <laughs> Pretty much sums up my college experience, <laughs> like emailing each other, like CPP files back and forth. So interesting ride. <laughs> That sounds about right. I'm curious. I also had a very similar progression of TI basic to like PHP. And did you use, it was called Hudzilla then. Now it's hacking with php.com. But that was the book that I like just clicked through to like learn my. That yeah. was it. <laughs> no, I don't even remember the PHP official documentation. Like that purple background is my. It's ingrained in my memory, but I think it was just kind of like hodgepodge of Google searching that got me there. So what was your first like paid programming gig? Yeah, so I mentioned the uh, to not go on a tangent. But so anyway, I, I broke my back in high school. Um, yeah, so I, playing football. So my sophomore year of high school during two a days. I don't know. I mean, you can talk about this. Talk about this, please. This is great. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if I took a bad hit. I mean, at some point I took a hit. I mean, I don't remember the exact instant. I have a stress fracture in my L5 vertebrae to this day still. Uh, anyway, so that happened. So, you know, I'm not a large person anyway, but so I, I didn't have a 
prosperous football career, but that's kind of what made me go into full-time computer nerd mode because I had a lot more free time. And so that's when I decided to build a website. And that's kind of, so as far as like paid programming, this like little flash game website became a business. So I incorporated, I think it was like 2003. So I think I was like 16 and ended up making a little bit of money in high school doing my self-taught hosted PHP server. So it's like, yeah, dedicated server. It was, you know, so anyway, it was like a lot of poking around, but that was my first, technically first paid programming gig was my flash game website what was the business model did people subscribe or yeah so this is actually a great question because i think this is why like open source resonates with me so much so my business model was like how can i spam people with enough ads that they are forced to look at them or or click on them so i was not positively contributing anything to society uh, with (laughs) it was just ad-based revenue so i feel like i was using programming and, and benefiting from it but it wasn't particularly uh, (laughs) beneficial to the world. Then how did that lead you to open source? Yeah, so it took a long time to get into open source. So there was a, not a brief time, there was a chunk of time there where I, after I graduated college, Flash Games, Flash has gone away. So I started working in Ruby professionally at a consultancy and I did that for six years or so. And then... So I was working with Ruby and throughout that Ruby experience, I wanted to get into open source, but I never made the leap, so to speak. And then finally, 2013, I just made it a goal to speak at a conference and, and start contributing to a project. So it's kind of took me several years to get there. Let's talk a little bit about what you're currently doing, because I'm sure that people will be interested after hearing sort of the biographical background. And also you'll have time at the end to plug everything. But yeah, tell us about what you're currently working on. Yeah, so probably won't surprise most listeners, but LiveView, Phoenix LiveView has been the majority of my focus this year. So I'm just continuing to refine programming model, add more features. So if folks saw my ElixirConf EU virtual presentation, I talked about kind of the recent additions, but it's mainly just you know new features, new optimizations, and, and trying to work towards a 1.0, but uh, we don't know when that might happen. For those who may not have watched that, I didn't. What is new in LiveView? Yeah, so all kinds of stuff. So old features feel new to me in that. So I was heads down this year trying to get Phoenix 1.5 out with a bunch of new LiveView features. So we had a, a lot of new features that were added and not you know necessarily publicized because we relaunched the Phoenix website. You know, I did that 15-minute screencast. So I was heads down for a long time. So some of these features have been around for the last several months, but not really talked about unless you were following the change log. So some of them would be like live navigation. So being able to do push state in the browser without a full page reload. We added deep change tracking optimizations. So we'll be able to track if you're rendering a deeply nested struct or map. We won't send that whole thing over the wire, execute all the template code. When the map changes, we'll just track all the the deeply nested keys. So that was pretty big feature for most people. A lot of people didn't know that that was expensive before, but now it's better. We added ability to like patch the title, ability to, let me see here. I have a list. It's been a long time coming, but as far as what folks have not seen, yeah, another one would be a static asset tracking. So this one's pretty cool. Uh, you probably wouldn't even know this is a problem until you needed it, but imagine you update your live view to send a new template structure down. And when you deploy that code, you also have new CSS styles that those markup tags need to look right. 
previously, if you push that code out, the live view wouldn't refresh the browser. It would just reconnect, re-render your template, and then your page would be broken looking. So now we actually will be able to track your JavaScript tag and CSS tags and say like, oh, the static digest changed. And we'll be able to force reload the page only in the case where cold deploy actually changed one of those files. Uh, so a lot of like little neat features like that. So let's just give you an idea. Yeah, that's pretty slick because I've definitely written the thing that force reloads. Like it just checks every 15 minutes. Like what's the version? What's the version? Because people just leave that tab open forever. <laughs> yeah. And now you get that for free. So like now... You have to say PHX track static on the asset tags that you want to track, but the Phoenix new generates those by default. So it would just work without you even knowing that you needed to do anything if you generated a Phoenix project with a live flag. So of these new features that are, they're already out. Everything I'm talking about is out, yeah. What was the most fun for you to work on or what were you the most excited about? Yeah, so the optimizations we've been able to do have been the most exciting because I talked about this, I think, last year. But when I first showed off LiveView, it was kind of a worse is better approach where the programming model itself was everything you wanted, but it was expensive on the wire, expensive on the server. But now it's like with the optimizations we have, it's the same programming model, but it can beat the best handwritten single page app in some cases. So being able to show that data on the wire is like better than the best handwritten JSON fiddling single page app that you could write is what's most exciting to me because the program model is you write the most naive code and like what falls out somehow is incredibly optimized. And it still impresses me even when I write an actual application with it. It doesn't seem like it should work, but it does. Have you seen any like really egregious abuse of, of this power yet? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, some of the games have been pretty fun. I mean, what I like to see is people solving those boring business problems. But the games, the Live View games, it's like split. A lot of people complain that people just are using Live View for games and you shouldn't be doing that. But for me, it's it's fun to see people push the limits. So it's like you don't want to make a first-person shooter with Live View. You're know, doing round trips to the server. But the fact that people are able to push the limits and it's viable is really interesting to me. So like one of them was like a flight simulator using like canvas to render a 3d map going back to the server and it works. It was playable for me over the internet. So those have been really fun. So the abuses are super fun to see. It's fun just to see any examples. So like I vicariously live through my Twitter live view search and I see demos come up. So I'm excited by the boring business problems, but equally it's fun to see people just playing around and experimenting. So I just found this. Looks like it was from the Phoenix Frenzy, the simulator. This seems pretty insane. Are you fly, are you flying? You is it working? I didn't have the instructions up, so I, I'm just like idling okay. forward. But now I see the map yeah, is. I'm, mo I'm moving. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's all server rendered. So it's like a canvas scene. So every tick is going to the server. Anyway, it's. I wouldn't build a commercial product with it, but the fact that it's viable is, is awesome. Speaking of commercial projects, the theme of this season is system and application architecture. We didn't really think that this episode had to be about that, but this is a great segue, which is how do you think about laying out a large live view code base? Do you have any patterns that would be helpful to people? Yeah, so this is a great question. There's fantastic documentation for live view today, but we don't have guides yet. So guides are something I'm waiting on because some of the larger architecture patterns are to be determined. 
you know, I think the obvious ones would be making use of PubSub. So, you know, in the, in the demo that I showed, being able to do distributed PubSub out of the box where you can just subscribe to say, you know, I want anytime a, a new tweet should show up in my timeline, you just subscribe and you render the new tweet and it just works. So I think PubSub is a, a central part of a larger programming model for an effective live view application, but there's a lot of uh, interior details to figure out that I don't have a full picture yet. So one would be component communication with a hierarchy of components on the page. What's the most effective way to communicate between them? You know, whether it's sending data down through the entire tree or messaging directly. You know, I do have some experience with React and some of those patterns, but I'm hesitant to uh, just say like, oh, that looks good and, and throw it into live view. So a lot of it is I need to see what people are doing in the wild and try to build uh, ever more complex things to figure those out. So it's a little bit experiment as you go. I think we'll have a better picture as we, one, are able to focus on those kind of problems, but also as we see what people are doing in the real world. I've got a friend who is part of a fairly large live view code base. And I guess right now it seems like they're trending towards like the fat controller problem. So is there anything that comes off the top of your head that's like, how do we keep that skinny or whatever? Or is, is that even a problem? I don't have a specific, like I haven't run into that myself. I think standard suggestions apply whether we're talking controller or a, just a regular gen server. It's like if you have a huge module with a lot of responsibilities, move that code, isolate it to the a module that's responsible for those things. So I know that's easier said than done, but I don't think there's anything drastically different in live view. I mean, it's stateful. That would be the difference, but that doesn't mean you can't write pure functions that take data and, and do something with it and return a result. So yeah, so I can't really speak directly without seeing their code base, but I would say standard rules apply. If you find live view is getting large and has a lot of responsibilities, you could split it up into components. If we're just talking like if it's just handling a lot of events, then you could just split that into component and compartmentalize that markup. If it's there's a ton of business logic there, then my recommendation would be move that out to uh, context and you know standard rules apply there. Speaking of live view being stateful, so I have this written eons ago, like in like I don't know early two thousands or whatever. So forever in internet time, we used to have heavily stateful things, and then like something happened where. The pendulum swung from stateful to stateless, and now I guess we're swinging back. So, like, do you see that as a problem, or how can we make sure that we kind of stay in the middle since there's kind of problems on either edge? Yeah. So, I guess when you say eons ago, other than like Corba and Java, if anyone remembers that, in your mind, what was eons ago stateful applications? I didn't have so a, the, much experience. Yeah. I mean, neither did I. This was entirely from I've been to Restfest. This was like early RestFest. They're like one of the core organizers was like, the first thing you should do in your API is turn off sessions. I'm just assuming somewhere in enterprise land, there's things like, I'm sure you've used it too, where you like, you have to sign into an API and push a cookie around. That's weird. <laughs> but so kind of like stuff like that. So it's just like, I don't know, heavily stateful or like, just look at wind forms where like your entire state's sitting in a form that's like the thing underneath body. <laughs> Yeah, so I can't say whether that's a problem because I, I didn't have any experience with that prior, but I will say that in my view, so ignoring the history, uh, I also think, you know, a stateful application in what we're talking about previously, they weren't running uh, Elixir or, or Erlang. So, so I will say we didn't have a great platform historically to write stateful applications in, for one. So I think a big part of the problem prior to this is if you wanted to build a stateful application, it was just difficult because the primitives weren't there. So for me, the platform matters. 
We've seen almost like uh, every mainstream language has had a live view inspired project, which has been actually really exciting to see. But I think it's a similar thing there where the Stateful platform is kind of everything that makes this really a viable thing. So I think I don't see it as a problem. I, I see it as it's what I've been trying to work towards when I found Elixir, what, seven years ago. So for me, Elixir is a platform to be able to do this kind of thing. I think, you know, having like distributed PubSub, distributed communication, like all the things that you need if you're running a stateful system are there for us. So I think we are in a unique position to make this pendulum swing, so to speak, uh, actually a great experience. Cool. And I think our last live view question, I saw somewhere on, I don't know if this is a thing now, but are we renaming just like statically rendered templates, dead views? Is that official now? <laughs> so that, that it, I think it is. So I, that was just, I don't know if I'm going to say, I have to ask Jose if he started that. I don't know where it started, but it has stuck. You know, it's a fun thing to say. So dead views are, are dead to me. That's what I said <laughs> in my talk a couple of days ago. So you know, if it's not a live view, it's a dead view. So I don't know that it's in the documentation anywhere yet, but that's kind of uh, what we refer to them as. <laughs> I mean, okay. they're, still great. they're still there. They're not going anywhere, but <laughs> they're still uh, great. They're just dead. Yeah. Yeah. They're not live. Uh, Are they going to be called zombie views at some point? No, I mean, I think they'll be there till the end of time. You can still render dead views from a live view as well. So uh, another feature we added was co-located templates. So you don't have to define a, a dead view to render something outside of your Elixir code. But if you wanted to render some complex hierarchy of templates, you can still put that in a regular Phoenix view. So they aren't going anywhere. They have a purpose. Okay. Yeah, that's hilarious. I thought that was a hilarious change in terminology. I want to know, before we wrap up with Live View, because I think that you've probably been fielding a lot of what I think would be perceived as like criticism. So I want you to steel man the opposition, right? Like what are the most valid critiques of live view and phoenix more broadly yeah so the most valid would, would be the offline mode isn't supported so it's specifically for live view offline isn't supported for phoenix because it's a web server so uh, except people running on nerves on premises so it's like it's still a muddy thing but in general yeah if you need offline support someone drives under a tunnel then obviously live view is not going to work so i've tried to be very clear up front in all my presentations on like where it's a bad fit but I think for a standby for the vast majority of us, the vast majority of applications we build, it's suitable. I think the vast majority of single page apps that we build today also don't work offline. So it's like offline support is actually an incredible amount of complexity to opt into. So it's great if, that you have options if you need it, but you can't just say, oh, I built a React or an Ember app and therefore I get offline. It's like, that's not how it works. So that would probably be the most valid for live view. For Phoenix, it's a harder, I don't know if I... I mean, maybe this because it's my baby, but maybe if you can give me an example of valid criticism, I could tell you whether it's the most valid, but I don't know if there's a particularly valid criticism of Phoenix and Elixir itself, other than the, the typical, whether it's community size or harder to hire for, you know, I can't number think of crunching most valid. Was, uh... <laughs> yeah, number crunching, but then it's like, it's not really a Phoenix thing. So mm -hmm. uh, if you give me an example, I'll tell you if it's fair. <laughs> I haven't heard any, like anything that I would perceive as valid. The ones that you mentioned, I think, are the most common. Eric, am I, is there one that I'm missing? Or I think the other one that I see pop up is like comparisons of frameworks. And this is not Phoenix, is just like in them. And it's always like, oh, these two Go servers are like super fast. But then you watch the charts and it, they peak and then they like fall over at some point. And Phoenix is just like, I'm doing good. <laughs> 
Yeah, that would be the tech empower benchmarks. That's what I would actually say is an unfair criticism, but I've spent more time than I care to remember trying to figure out why Phoenix does so poorly in their setup, and I've just given up. Like you weren't able to duplicate their results, or you weren't able to... Well, right, like the code that they're using is checked into a repo, so I've gone in there, and it's been years since I looked at it, but initially, logging was enabled. So the problem with any benchmark, it's like, they have these Go micro frameworks that just like respond to a Git request and then send put response header text okay and then you're like all right it's so fast but then the default Phoenix app has logging and just logging on its own will crush your performance doing that I/O so initially there was all kinds of things that weren't just one to one if we were comparing like request ID all the Phoenix middleware that is explicit in your endpoint but it's not the same thing that was being measured so we did send pull request it's been probably three plus years. And then the next round generated like high error rate. So I don't know. Anyway, so I've just, I've given up. I don't think they're representative of the framework, but it's uh, not worth my time at this point. But, but I hate seeing that. It always comes up. If it's on Hacker News, someone will link to those benchmarks and be like, why is Phoenix so slow? It's like, all right. Is there a definitive rebuttal of that yet? Yeah, I mean, empirical evidence for me, it's like if you look at the success stories, people are getting, whether it's at Logstash, there's a guy running, he just tweeted like yesterday, I think. I forget how many tens of thousands of requests per second that he's running through his Phoenix server. But I think we see enough demonstrative examples of success in the wild of people. Bleacher Report, people are tired of hearing of that. But people that are actually exercising the framework and doing real work, hitting the database, seeing incredible performance. So for me, it's the real world versus the benchmark. Okay, but when somebody posts that on Hacker News, we don't have like a link we can point them to to just be like, shut up. Not a aggregated link of, here's an example of scalability, but someone should put one together. Yeah, so one thing we like to do in the show is kind of give people who are listening little opportunities to contribute to open source and to the community. And so that's one example. You also mentioned several earlier on with like, adding dead view to the <laughs> Phoenix docs. I do want to give you a chance because I think that you probably also have lots of examples of sort of invalid critiques that if you haven't yet gotten the opportunity to just savage them mercilessly, now would be a good time. I see. Yeah, there's probably a large list. I think just by virtue of having the name framework associated causes people to think Phoenix is like bloated or heavy. I feel like in the last couple of years, we've been able to get past that, like enough people in the community correct others that come in and say, you know, they don't want to use a bloated framework. That is something that I fought from day one that Phoenix is somehow heavy or, you know, has a bunch of code that someone doesn't need. So I took my experience with Rails and kind of tried to make implicit things explicit. So I think even out of the box, if you don't want a request ID generated or cookie session, it's like you just delete a line from your own code. So I think those would probably be the most unfair is just whether it's a bloated framework or heavy. Uh, That's really funny to me because I always thought that my impression of Phoenix has been like, it's so ludicrously light. It's like... (laughs) Yeah, well, like I said, I think it's all just like it has a name framework in the name, which I think is a good thing. It's just, I think it's a developer thing, right? Like, and then you have the term micro framework, which I really hate because... To do anything useful, it's like you want a valid base to build things from. So then you have these micro frameworks that provide you very little. And it's like, well, what's the point? So anyway, yeah, that's probably the most unfair. And the benchmark thing was another example that 
is what it is. But I'm trying to think. I mean, another thing that really grinds my gears. So your future listeners, in case people have requested that I extract channels from Phoenix as one example of just like, oh, it's bloated because it has this channels feature and they don't need to use channels. So for me, I really dislike premature extraction of code and dependencies. So I think Jose kind of, I shouldn't speak for him here, but I think Jose instilled in me early on when I started collaborating with him, prop, like good open source decisions. So I think a cautionary tale is I see people extract too early where they want to have this really extensible base, but then you almost get trapped in your own dependency uh, web where it's like just to do one release. And we kind of see this with plug in Phoenix and live view. It's just like a few dependencies. And then if you coordinate features, it becomes hard to manage. So I've been very careful to not prematurely extract things. And then channels is one example where, well, one, I built the framework to have Phoenix channels. Like that was the feature I wanted. So it's kind of my baby, but also it's not a large code path. You know, it's probably, I had to guess less than, I don't know, couple thousand lines of code with documentation so it's like if you're not using channels it's not hurting you to yeah, be there and it, you just delete the like line in the endpoint <laughs> yeah yeah and it's not hard it's so it's very simple to not use but one example that would make sense to extract though so on the flip side of that one area i would extract now in 2020 would be the phoenix template layer it's come up in the real world where people want to render an email template and then they don't want to depend on a web framework which is absolutely valid that is something at some point that we we plan to extract, but then you have to split the dependency and then Phoenix view needs to still work for people running Phoenix. So maybe Phoenix 2.0 will split that, but that's the most, I think, unvalid criticism so far. Is there anything regarding live view that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? I don't think so. I think, you know, one thing that's been interesting with live view is just the amount of feedback from other communities that we've seen. That's really surprised me. I was listing them in our Slack room yesterday, but it was like closure. Someone's working on one enclosure. Someone's working on, I think there's like stimulus reflux for Rails. There's a Django project doing live view and then live wire for PHP. And someone on Haskell is working on one. So it's like, I constantly see people being inspired by it. So it seems like it's resonated with developers at large, uh, this kind of programming model. So that's been pretty cool to see. Mm-hmm. What about excluding Live View? What else is new in Phoenix that you'd like to talk about that you, the audience should know about? Yeah, so Phoenix itself is quite baked at this point. So like all the interesting things have been happening outside of Core. Probably the most notable Phoenix 1.6. So Phoenix 1.5 is out right now. Phoenix 1.6 will include the Phoenix Gen off generators for an authenticated authentication system. So if folks missed the Dashbit blog, so Jose uh, Valim's company, Dashbit, released this drop-in authentication system where it's not a authentication dependency, it's an authentication, like it started as Jose wrote a Phoenix project and built authentication in that project, how he would like an authentication system to look. And Aaron Renner at Dockyard, who I work with, is turning that into a Phoenix generator. So it's not like... For people that are used to like an authentication solution that is a dependency that does all this stuff for you, it's more like a starting point code generator for you to extend with a few libraries, but those libraries do like password hashing. So that's probably the most notable quality of life improvement for Phoenix 1.6. But other than that, we just have small tweaks. So Phoenix itself is yeah pretty stable at this point. And when can we look forward to 1.6 dropping? 
near future, I don't think there's a lot of blockers. You know, with 1.5 was a pretty, not large release API wise, but large release feature wise. Like we included the live dashboard, which is again, outside of core, but it ships with new projects. So I think all the interesting things happening will be like Phoenix live dashboard related, uh, living on that dependency or the authentication solution. But core itself is quite happily stable and you might see minor API additions, but Phoenix itself, yeah, I don't have any any large features planned. So is Phoenix 2 going to come when Elixir 2 comes? Is that the... <laughs> yeah, it's basically the same plan. I think if you look on the issues tracker, there is a 2.0 milestone with maybe two issues, but it's like, I can't even tell you what they are at the moment if you want to look. Very small. So it's like things that like, oh yeah, this would be nice to do, but we don't want to break things, but there's no timeline. So it's not like we are going to like pull the rug out from everyone and say, you have to upgrade now. At some point, I'm sure it will happen, but there's no nothing that's holding us back breaking API wise. Hmm. One question I've been asking a lot of folks and I never get the answer I really want to hear, but I'll ask you anyways, sort of in comparison to Rails, like, do you think when and if we will ever beat Rails in terms of popularity, especially like in the startup community? I think you're a more likable personality than certain other framework developers <laughs> who shall not be named. Yeah, what is your take on this? Yeah, it'd be interesting to compare community sizes at this point. You know, I've been out of the Ruby community for several years, so I don't have a good stance on where they're at. Yeah, I don't see any reason why we couldn't see the same adoption that they've had or, or more. So I think one thing that Elixir has done is, for me, it, it seems like it's made functional programming more approachable. So I think that's one of our selling points that other functional uh, languages, I think, lack is it looks too... And this is just my biased view, but at least for me personally, trying to come into functional programming, I don't want to say like too academic. It just looked unapproachable to me. Yeah, right? I'll, I'll agree to, with that. Like I want to build, I want to build things was like my goal and I just couldn't get into it. So I think as we continue to bring folks across that chasm into functional programming, I do think that we have a, a unique opportunity to grow quite large as a community. So I feel like the current growth, it has been, we're not plateauing. It's like, I stopped tracking Phoenix downloads a long time ago, but it's at like a exponential growth at this point. So I think we're comfortably growing still, but I'd love to see us take over the world, but we'll see where we land in a few years. Okay. So if our podcast plateaus and downloads, it's our fault, not yours. I do want to, <laughs> I do want to ask you to expand a little bit on that though. Like outside of the size of the community, which I guess is actually the output of this function that I'm asking about, but what are the systemic blockers that you think are creating friction in terms of adoption? So I think for a long time, it was just reaching critical mass. For me, Phoenix is six years old now. Elixir is seven or well, 2013 is when I got into Elixir. I think Jose started in 2011 or 12. I forget when it technically became Elixir, but for a while, it was just proving that we had critical mass and was worth relying on, something that you would want to be around five plus years. So I think for several years, we've crossed that point. So it's been a shift from, so for me, like I've taken this ride myself. So just like trying to get anyone to listen, to take a look at this was step one. And then step two was, you know, getting people to bet their business on it. And we had enough success stories there that's caught on. So I think at this point, it's just, for me, is evangelizing the community and just using that to grow and get people interested. So I think we have enough success stories now. And I think Elixir, I don't know if they've added it yet, but they're going to add like a case study portion to their website. So I think we're seeing this transition to, as far as like what, how I view the marketing from a Phoenix standpoint, 
is attracting people on our merits now. We know it's a good bet. It's a safe bet, so to speak. It's so young, we're still new, but we're a much safer bet than we used to be. So instead of convincing developers to give us a try, it's the companies now mm. see us as a strategic advantage. So I, I know the question was about blockers. So I'm just going through what were previous blockers. So we have companies now that see Elixir as a strategic advantage, and that was a big milestone initially because the blocker was a risky bet right. on a new technology. So at this point, the only blocker I've seen professionally as far as like our work through Dockyard as a consultancy is just companies still have a concern over the ability to hire Elixir engineers. They still know it's a good technology, but there's still like Java is a safer bet for us. So we have seen some of those concerns, which kind of go back to day one where how am I going to hire people? But those are less of a concern. And then we have had... For political reasons, we have lost contracts to other languages just because a company is unwilling to retrain you and if they believe in the technology. So I don't know that that's a direct answer to your question, but I don't think technologically there's a blocker there. I don't think we're lacking libraries at this point. Okay. I think it's just a matter of proper evangelizing and growing to a point such that it becomes an easy de facto choice. So I think we're on our way there and it's become much easier for me to sell Elixir personally, but... I don't want to try to like beat Java, so to speak, as far as like enterprise adoption, but the blocker would be, it just becomes an obvious choice where people don't have to go through this political game of trying to get Elixir in the door. Right. Yeah. It keeps coming up. We keep having this conversation on the show and outside the show. And I do not see any good reason why any startup getting built on the ground right now would choose Ruby and Rails over Elixir and Phoenix, except for the sort of prevalence of talent, which I think is actually a bad reason because I think the better developers want to go work in Elixir. So that's where I land on anyway. Talk a little bit more about the future. What does the future of Phoenix look like? What do you want to see from the Elixir community more broadly? What do you aspire to? Yes, that's a good question. I don't put goalposts super far in the future. Things just keep tending to happen (laughs) organically. One example would be like Phoenix Presence was a year of work of my time that just kind of came about like, oh, we need to solve this problem that most people have. And then that was a year plus of work. And then Phoenix Live, you came about, and that's been a year and a half, two years of work at this point. So I think from this point, it's pretty clear that LiveView is going to continue to grow. I mean, we're not 1.0 yet. I think there's a lot to be done there, especially around larger architecture designs, like what that looks like, what kind of features it makes sense to add. So I think LiveView itself will continue to grow and I think become a bigger part of the way people build web applications in Elixir. Outside of that, we do have some plans. We have for a long time had a plan for like a PubSub 2.0, so like a Phoenix PubSub rewrite to split it into smaller building blocks. So that's something that we've kind of had a couple of false starts there because Phoenix PubSub is doing quite well on its own, but it would be nice at some point once I have time on my hands to be able to take PubSub and split it into like an RPC mechanism. So basically like Jose is really good at looking at things that I build and finding smaller building blocks of everything that I hodgepodge together. So one example is Phoenix PubSub has a process group built into it, but Jose realized that we could split that out into like a RPC mechanism to talk between servers. Could use that to build on a process group, which is like what Phoenix Tracker and Phoenix Presence is built on. So by doing that, we then have like this distributed programming toolkit for people to build unique things on top of service discovery or distributed counters. So we've had this idea for a few years now. We just haven't really distributed problems are 
pretty time consuming to solve. So we haven't really been able to focus on it. But if I had to put a goalpost on, I find myself having solved all the other problems. That's what I would focus on. Is this what Fire Nest was yes. aiming to be? Okay. Exactly. So yeah, we were originally going to write Phoenix Pub Sub as a project called Fire Nest. The only reason being we were worried that Phoenix Pub Sub would have this stigma of being Phoenix related, even though like, it has nothing to do with the web framework. We were worried that like having Phoenix in the name would somehow make people think like, oh, it's not this general general solution to this distributed programming toolkit. So that was originally the plan, but then it was a, like I said, a pretty big initiative. So we didn't quite get there, but some of the ideas that came out of that did make it into, I think I misspoke, we did ship PubSub 2.0, but some of our grander features would be like a PubSub 3.0. So we did take some of those Fire Nest ideas and rewrite portions of PubSub to make it more efficient. But our grand vision has TBD there, but we'll see what happens in the future. Outside of that, I think for... Elixir itself, we have I mean, a couple interesting things happening there. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things happening for one. So I think like Nerves is one example where I think we'll continue to see really interesting problems being solved on hardware, which I think is a unique position to be in. So it's like very rarely is a language good for like web products and also running on device. That's exciting to me. And then we have libraries like Annex for machine learning. So one of my, Jason Goldberger, another one of my coworkers at Dockyard is working on a machine learning library for like first class machine learning elixir. So I think that would be as far as like the checklist of things companies may ask, like, well, can I do this? I think we continue to innovate in pretty much all the domains that are necessary to be successful, even though we don't have to, right? It's like you can still be successful if you were just a a web programming language, but I think we're uniquely suited to be successful on tiny embedded hardware, on massive servers and machine learning fleets and, and everything. Wow. I am sad that we are out of time, Chris. We do want to give you a chance to make any final plugs or asks for the audience before you go, uh, where people can find you, how people can support what you're working on or get involved. The time is yours. Yeah, I think the only thing I'll call out would be ElixirConf is going to be going virtual for this fall. So I think uh, September 3rd or so is when it's going to take place online, but the CFP just opened. So We'd love to have folks submit talks for that and deliver those virtually. So I'd say if you were ever hesitant to give a talk at a conference, this would be a great dry run. I think it's uh, maybe lower stakes or maybe higher stakes for people to deliver a speech online, but it'd be a great time to get involved in the community and submit a talk. And the deadline is July 18th, and I think this will come out the 9th, so hopefully when you're hearing this, I'm correct. Uh, (laughs) You'll still have a little bit left to, to apply. Yeah, as far as supporting me, I have to plug Dockyard. So Dockyard is a consultancy that I work for. They support me working 75% of my time on open source. That's what's able to allow me to do cool things like live view and still have a a personal life and a a sane life at home. So check us out at Dockyard.com. We're happy to chat about design development and what have you. Awesome. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again, Chris McCord. And to my co-host, Eric Ostrich, once again, I'm Justin Seepin. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we are always looking to take on new projects, building web applications in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, and React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast 
player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Epen and Eric at Eric Ostrich. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on system and application architecture. Thank you.